There we got the bowl. Great. Yes. Come on up. And, and as everyone is coming up, I'm just going to remind y'all uh, what we are doing here in baptism. And we'll say first, uh, I have the gift. I've had the gift of knowing the Dysons. We were in a small group together. What, seven years ago? Like before you had any kids at all. Uh, so this is very sweet to get to be here and, and be a part of this this morning. And oh yeah, just just cram, cram around. Uh, but we'll remind you that the efficacy of this sacrament this morning, uh, it is not dependent on the strength of my relationship with the Dysons. Right, like if this was just about having a sweet morning or a sweet moment, then yeah, it's like sweet that we know each other. Oh, right? But this is about so much more than that. What we're doing this morning is about claiming God's promises. And the baptism and what we're celebrating, it matters because what we believe is that God has chosen to pour out his blessing in many ways, but one of the primary ways is through families. And just like in the Old Testament, there is a sign of being a part of the family of God that was offered through circumcision. Now, the sign of being a part of God's family is offered through baptism. Something that was before bloody and painful is now uh, done with water. It's a, it's a washing and a reminding. So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to be baptizing Rhett and marking him off as a child of the covenant. We're going to be saying, Rhett, you belong to this family. And so as a part of this this morning, there are going to be vows that Samantha and Elliot will take. And they're going to say, we know that Rhett needs Jesus to come after him, and we're trusting Jesus to do that. But there's also going to be a time when you, as the congregation, as these people's community, has, have a chance to take a vow as well. And our friends who are up here with us this morning, they are just a representation of all of y'all. Because what we know is that uh, parenting is not a journey that should be done alone. Am I right? Amen. Amen. So the question I'll ask you all, not right now, but in a minute, because I want you to hear the vow first, is do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child. And what you'll say very loudly is, we do. Okay? Okay. Great. So Samantha and Elliot Dyson, do you acknowledge your child's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? If so, say, we do. Do you claim God's covenant promises on, her, on his behalf? And do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for his salvation as you do for your own? We do. And do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before him a godly example, that you will pray with and for him, and that you will strive that you will teach him the doctrines of our holy religion and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Okay. This is for everyone. Do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child? Here we go. Okay, Rhett. Come here, buddy. Oh. Whoa, it was a big buddy. Okay. <laughs> A lot bigger than my eight-week-old. Okay, Rhett Landers Dyson, child of the covenant, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah. Okay, Rhett, we're going to pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for the gift of this boy. Lord, thank you for the gift that he has to this family, and thank you, Lord, that he is a part of this community. 
Jesus, we are trusting you to come after him. I ask, Lord, that there would never be a day that he does not know and experience the chasing love of Jesus. We pray that you would fill his heart, Holy Spirit. We look forward to the day when he will confess his faith in you for himself. Um, Lord, and pray that you would make him a man who is strong in you, who is strong in your word, who is bold in the love that he gives out to the world around him because he has boldly received that love from you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, you guys can go ahead and grab your seats. Uh, I think there'll be some pictures of Rhett. Yes. Oh, oh, uh, behind us. Uh, some things that Rhett loves. Rhett loves playing with his big siblings and cousins. He loves sticks, and he loves the greatest showman. Wow, Rhett. Look at you. It's amazing. Okay, guys, I'm going to go ahead and invite uh, Maggie. Maggie Drone's going to come up, and she's going to read our scripture for us this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up. We're going to be in Acts 28, the very last chapter of the book of Acts. Uh, And if you don't have your Bible, you can follow along. It'll be on the screen. Oh, I'm sorry, Kaylee. Cool. You're in Acts 28, (laughs) verses 16 through 31, or 17 through 31. Got it. Okay, Paul in Rome. Uh, After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me, me at liberty, but there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appear to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. The, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, and uh, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, uh, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, they expounded him, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them that Jesus, born from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to our fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart have grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their, eye, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I will heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. 
He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Thanks, Maggie. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we, uh, we trust that you desire to speak, with, speak to us this morning. In fact, Lord, we, we rely on, we call upon your promise that your word never returns to you void. So we pray that you would be watering even our own hearts this morning, that you'd be growing us and nurturing us in your word as we receive it. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now I'll warn you guys before I get started, uh, my phone died, and that's how I keep track of time. So who knows, we may be here a while. Uh, But I want to start this morning by talking about hope, okay? Uh, Do you know anybody in your life, like do you have anybody in your life who is a very hopeful person? Let's go ahead and raise our hands. Do you, do you have anybody in your life like that? You're like, oh, I think this is a very hopeful person in my life. Got a few timid people. Okay, a few people are awake this morning. Um, we always appreciate those people, right? Who like with their unbuoyed optimism can, can always find a silver lining and sometimes they also really annoy us. Does that ever happen to any of you? No, that's just me with my hopeful friends. Uh, how many of you would say that when you look out in the world, man, our world could use a little bit more hope? Is anybody with me on that this morning? Okay. And we're getting close to the Christmas season, so that's a perfectly appropriate schmaltzy thing to say. Like, yes, more hope. No, but, but we know that. That like, yeah, of course we want our world to have more hope. That when people are hopeful, it changes kind of the tenor of our relationships and of our world. What about you? Like in your own heart and life? Would you like to experience more hope yourself? Would you like to be a more hopeful person? Can we get some hand raises on that? What was true about you as a person, me as a person, uh, is that hope is necessary for our survival. It's true. Like, if you read any memoir from someone who has ever been a prisoner of war, that becomes very clear, does it not? And what is always true in their stories is that when, all, when the prisoners get taken into this prisoner of war camp, uh, there are always people who don't have any hope. And those people don't last very long in the camp. And there's another group of people that, that these memoirs always talk about. They always talk about the people who set their hope on something like being out by Christmas. Right? They have hope, but they've set their hope on something that's not very stable or reliable. And they may hope with all of their hearts they're going to be out by Christmas, but when that deadline comes and goes, what often happens is those people go also. So we need hope, but it's also important that our hope is in a solid and a stable place. And here's the thing about hope, is that the fact that we are people who have to have hope in our lives in order to live, it betrays something to us about the world that we live in, which is that the world that we live in is not as it should be. That's by its very definition, because by its very definition, what hope says is that I am looking forward to a future that is better than my present. Isn't that what hope is about? And to believe that is to admit that the present is not the way that it should be. If we need hope to live, if that's universal about us as people, what that tells us is that universally for us as people, something is wrong. 
What is it? What the scriptures would tell us is that at the root of what is wrong is our alienation from God. That you and I, as people, were created for deep intimacy with the God of the universe. Like in the story of creation, right, when Adam is made from the dust of the ground, what Genesis says is that God uh, breathes life into him. It's such an intimate thing, because the first thing Adam would have seen when he opened his eyes is the face of God. But that's the kind of intimacy that we were created to experience with God. What scripture tells us, though, is that we have become alienated from God. That we have turned away from him and said, I don't want any part of you. And we have sought to make gods out of ourselves. Now, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of us who mess around with religion. We'll make all kinds of spiritualities. We've been studying that through Acts, right? We call those things idols. What we love to do is create gods or forms of spirituality that we can control, that make it seem like God is someone who can be manipulated by our actions. And all that does, though, is reinforce the alienation that has already existed between us and God. Because we've created a substitute in his place. And that alienation that we experience with God, it affects everything in our lives. Not only are we alienated from him, but because we've turned away from him, we are also alienated from each other. And that alienation, that gap in relationship, it explains all of the war, all of the oppression, all of the injustice that we see in the world around us. And you don't have to believe in God to believe that that exists. Am I right? And not only does it, exper- not only does it explain the alienation that we experience on a macro level, it, ex- ex- wow. it explains the alienation that we experience in our own individual relationships with each other. Like, I don't know if you know this, but Thanksgiving is about to happen, Right? It's this holiday that, that for a lot of us we look forward to, but that sometimes we, we also dread, don't we? That what we know deep inside is that the people that we most love and long to be connected with are also the people that we most easily hurt and most easily hurt us. That's a symptom of the alienation that exists between us and God and us and each other and even between ourselves, even in ourselves. But that alienation is spread to the point where we're, we are even alienated from ourselves, that, that we would rather distance ourselves from the pain and from our experience of being human because it's too much for us. That's why there's addiction in the world, because of alienation. And so, of course, we hope, oh, God, is there something better? There's got to be something better than this that we experience that deep alienation, but we're looking for something. We're searching for connection. And so we put our hope in all of these different places. There's a, a guy who writes for The Atlantic. His name is uh, Shadi Hamid. He wrote this article back in April of last year. It's called America Without God. And he says, as Christianity's hold in particular has weakened, ideological intensity and fragmentation have risen. American faith, it turns out, is as fervent as ever. It's just that once that what was once religious belief has now been channeled into political belief. 
right? That our, that our hope that, that ultimately should be placed in God has been placed in our politics. It says, political debates over what America is supposed to mean have taken on the character of theological disputations. This is what religion without religion looks like. This is what misplaced hope looks like. He says, new secular religions unleash dissatisfaction, not toward the possibilities of divine grace or justice, but towards one fellow's, one's fellow citizens who become embodiments of sin, deplorables or enemies of the state. But that misplaced hope, when it's, when it's channeled, for example, this author is saying, into politics, it wreaks havoc on our world. That we are all putting our hope somewhere. Maybe for you it's not politics. Maybe it's vacation, right? Oh, just when I can get to vacation. Or if you have kids, it's, oh, when I can get home from vacation, right? <laughs> when I can just find the person who's going to love me for who I am. When I finally get the promotion at work I've been longing for, when I finally achieve that thing I've been hoping to achieve, we are all putting our hope in something, like UT football, right? (laughs) Too soon, but it all comes crashing down. Because I didn't even try that joke at East. It it wouldn't even have worked there. (laughs) That we are all putting our hope in something, and that we are being constantly betrayed by those hopes. But here's what Paul says in our passage. He tells the people, he says, I'm in chains because of the hope of Israel. And what we know from Paul's theology is what he believed is that the hope of Israel was also the hope of the world. Paul arrives in Rome and he gathers this group of people together and he tells them, hey, I want to tell you why I'm in chains and I'm in chains because of the hope that I have and the hope that you can have and the hope I want to share with you. And the next day, even more people show up because people are desperate for hope. Are you desperate for it? Are you? And if Paul is telling us, he wants to proclaim to us that the scriptures are proclaiming to us this morning the hope of Israel, the hope of the world, would we lean in with hungry hearts and say, Lord, teach us. Friends, the hope of the world that Paul proclaims is not a what. The hope of the world is a who. When I was preaching over at East, there was a little kid in the front who whispered, it's Jesus. (laughs) It's Jesus. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the hope of the world. And do you know, that is the most unlikely person you or I could imagine being the hope of the world. Is he not? Let's think about Jesus' biography for a second. He's from a backwater town in a backcountry part of the Roman Empire. A nobody from a nothing town who is uneducated, incredibly poor, who has no home, whose ministry lasts for three years. And you know what Jesus is really good at? He's really good at attracting a large group of followers and then driving all of those followers away. Very consistently throughout his ministry, as soon as he starts gaining a group of people who are following him, he says something and they all turn away from him. This is the hope of the world? This hope of the world who is crucified like a common criminal. Do you realize how ridiculous it is that we even know his name? Because when he was crucified, those few followers who had stuck with him, you know what happened? 
they all left too. And this is our Jesus, the hope of the world. He had none of the things that we would consider qualifications to be an influencer in our world. Didn't have a lot of followers. Didn't have a lot of endorsements. If he was to write a self-help book, what would go on the back? Great at driving people away. Pick up your cross and follow me. Wow. And yet, Jesus does not stay in the tomb. That the reason that we know his name is that he was resurrected, that God the Father raised Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. That is the endorsement that rings over Jesus' life. And what it tells us is, yes, he was a man, but he was so much more than that. He was the son of God. And that through his death and through his resurrection, he was achieving something uh, that what he was achieving was reconciliation between us and God. That through his death and that through his resurrection, he was eliminating the alienation that constantly plagues us as humans. That he has brought us back into relationship with God. That because of what Jesus has done, God the Father can now look at you and call you son, call you daughter. That you can now, through Jesus Christ, look at God and call God Father. That the invitation that is open to us is that kind of deep, intimate relationship with God that we long for. Paul says the hope that we have, the hope that we're clinging to, the hope of Israel, the hope of the world, is that Jesus has already come and he's restored our relationship with God if we would trust in him. That we can taste that intimacy now and that the promise is that we will taste it into eternity. That's our hope. And friends, do you know there is nothing that you can do to earn that love? Nothing. But the reconciliation between you and God, it costs something. It costs Jesus everything. But it cost him everything so that it could be offered to you for free. And that all of the things that you and I try to offer to God to prove how worthy we are of his love are irrelevant. It's like traveling across the world. It's like traveling to Europe and trying to pay for something with dollars. Your money is no good here. That's the most offensive thing about the gospel. It's why all of these religious people who come and visit Jesus or come and visit Paul, it's why so many of them storm off in anger. That what the gospel calls us to, what the good news of Jesus calls us to, the hope of Jesus calls us to, the hope of the world is to admit that we are a people who are desperately in need of grace. That we are a people who have nothing to offer God but our sin. And the audacity to believe that that's exactly where he wants to meet us. I heard a preacher, R.C. Sproul, he talked about uh, the, the thief on the cross. I don't know if you know this, but when Jesus was crucified, there were two other criminals who were crucified next to him. 
who mocked him the whole time during their crucifixion? Which, geez, can you imagine? Like, I'm just trying to imagine being up on a cross and having the energy to mock somebody else. Anyway, there they are. <laughs> one of them is mocking Jesus. They're both mocking Jesus, but by the end, one of them has said, no, there is something different about this guy. And he asks him, who are you? When he tells Jesus, I want to be with you, and Jesus says to him, today, you will be with me in paradise. This is a man who has done nothing. And I want you to imagine, just for a second, uh, what happens when this man gets to heaven. And for the sake of the illustration, we're going to talk about the pearly gates. Let's just be clear, those things don't exist, okay? So people have wacky ideas of heaven. That's not real. But just for the sake of the illustration, okay? Just imagine that the thief of the cross is up at the pearly gates, and there's someone who asks him, hey, what are you doing here? He's like, well, honestly, I don't know. And maybe the angel asks him, well, you know, tell me about your religious pedigree. Like, where were you educated? He says, I haven't received any kind of religious education. Oh, you're self-taught. Okay. Well, tell me about what you know about the atonement then. I have no idea what that means. Never heard the word before. You must have at least read the Bible a lot, right? He says, no, never read it. Can you at least quote John 3.16? No idea. Never met Tim Tebow. He has no idea what John 3.16 is. Like, okay, well, you don't know very much. Maybe you've done something. Like, maybe, did you, like, give a lot of money? Is there, like, a bench named after you in the temple or something? Like, are you very generous? He's like, well, I've stolen a lot of money. Oh, no, that's not really what we're looking for. Then you imagine Jesus walks by, and the man says, oh, he told me I could come in. He said. They say, okay, welcome. And that ultimately, that is all any of us can say when we stand before God. He said I could come in. And that's enough. That all of the things that we think that we know, that all of the works that we pile up, all of our accomplishments, all of our awards, all of our accolades, they mean nothing. That we are welcomed in to the embrace of the Father, not because of what we have done, but because of what has been done for us and on our behalf. Friends, that's what the hope of the world is. That's what was changing people all throughout the book of Acts. You realize this message, man, it affected all kinds of different people all up and down the social spectrum. People who were slaves and people who were slave owners, they were moved by this message. Men, women, people who were poor, people who were rich, people who had all the power and prestige you could imagine and people who had none of it. But this message is good news for all kinds of people because it is offered to all people. And that there is nothing that qualifies us for it aside from our need, which we have in abundance, each of us. And in our hope is it is that Jesus who wraps us in his arms and says, and, and pours his love out on us. That's our hope. That's the hope of the gospel that Paul is proclaiming here. It's a salvation that is not about what we can do for God, but about what God has done for us. Amen? That's good news. And it's that good news that has sent Paul out on this mission across the Mediterranean. It's this hope that has driven Paul to want to share this hope with all of the people around him. 
Let's just talk about that for a minute. What this passage has to teach us about the mission of God. Because can we, can we acknowledge, this is a very weird ending for a book, is it not? Like, you know, the, I know we've skipped around in Acts quite a bit, but let me just remind you, okay? Paul is this man who's had this massive conversion experience. He was persecuting Christians, then he becomes a Christian, and now he's out preaching about Jesus to all of these people. He's doing it all around, he's planting these churches in all these different places, and he gets arrested even because of the grace that he is proclaiming, and so he gets sent, and he's tried by the, tried by the kind of Jewish authorities. They hand him off to, to the Romans, and he appeals to Caesar, and he's shipped off to Rome. And there's like a shipwreck and a snake bite, la, la, la. Anyway, he finally gets there, okay? And what we expect, right, is fireworks, like Billy Graham style. Like Paul rolls into town. This is one of the greatest theologians who's ever lived, one of the greatest evangelists, one of the greatest apologists who's ever lived. We're like, let's fill the Colosseum, right? Hand out the tickets, get the choir behind him singing Amazing Grace in Latin. Like, let's really do it big. But that's not what happens. What we see is Paul uh, under house arrest, probably paying his way himself. So he's there in Rome working. He's a tent maker, probably a tent repairer. So he's got his like leather making tools. So he's there like fixing people's tents, making belts. I don't know, you know, what leather makers do. Probably one or two of you out here in the congregation this size in Nashville. That's Paul's life. And Luke probably knows what happened to Paul next. Like when Luke writes this story, um, he can tell us Paul was there for two years because Luke knows what happens after those two years. But Luke doesn't tell us because that's not the point. Because the book of Acts, not to mention all of scripture itself, is not about one particular person. It's not about the heroism of Paul or the magnificence of Peter. This is not like Paul's application to the hall of faith, you know? Hall of Fame of Faith. This isn't his highlight reel. This book, the book of Acts, is about God's mission out in the world. That's what this book is about. That's what scripture is about. Which is why the book ends like it does with Paul. Let's see, this is how it ends. And he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. If you remember, way back at the beginning of Acts, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. And the, the book ends because that promise has now, it hasn't been totally fulfilled, but the, the message has now reached Rome, the epicenter of culture, of society, of, of, of the economy in the known kind of Paul's known world, and from there, it will continue to radiate out. This book ends with a giant ellipsis, right? The dot, dot, dot. Because the story of God's mission is a story that's ongoing. The story of God's mission is the story that you and I have been invited into. The story that we are a part of. It makes me think of Lord of the Rings. Of course, right? when Sam and Frodo are kind of in the darkest part of their journey. If you don't know Lord of the Rings, there's like two of the main characters, okay? And they're kind of on this, um, like a fool's errand. They've got the goal of saving the world, but there's very little hope it's gonna happen. 
and they're this, in this moment of kind of physical, emotional, spiritual darkness, utter darkness. And one of the characters, Sam, he says, don't the great tales ever end? And Frodo says, no, they never end as tales. The people in them come and go when their parts ended. And our part will end sooner or later. But no, they never end as tales. That what Sam and Frodo are realizing in this moment of their kind of immense darkness is that they are a part of a story that is so much bigger than them. A story that was happening before they entered it and a story that will go on long afterwards. That's us. That's us and this story. Do you realize, uh, if, if you were to look at Paul and his place kind of in the Roman Empire, compare him to Caesar, and you asked, hey, which one of these things is going to keep going? This, this mis- mission, this message of Paul or the Roman Empire? Which of these is going to stick around? Which, which of these things has legs? Which do you think you would have said at the time? I'm glad you guys are awake this morning. Thank you. Yes, right? You would have said the Roman Empire, of course. But where is the Roman Empire now? In the dustbin of history. You go and you visit its ruins. And here we are, proclaiming and hearing the message of the gospel, the hope of Israel, the hope of the world proclaimed. It's a story that, that, that can't be contained. It's a story that's unfolding over every continent, that's in every country, that every time the enemy tries to stamp it out, rears up even more. That it right now is exploding in places of the world that you and I have never heard of. That is the message of the gospel. That's the mission that we have been invited into, the hope of the world. So how do we participate, Right? Is that what you're asking? I hope so. What do we do with this hope, right? How do, we, how do we participate in this mission that God has called us to, that God is about in the world? And guys, it's so easy. That's not true. It's so simple, okay? We'll say that. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. We welcome and we proclaim. That that's how we're called into participating in this mission. That we welcome and that we proclaim. Can I imagine Paul sitting in his um, kind of his apartment that he's rented, that he's paying for out of his meager salary as a tent maker? And the passage tells us that there were some of these Jews who believed and some who didn't believe. And I've wondered, how would Paul know that unless some of the Jews who believed came back to him to ask him more questions? And they come to him. They knock on his door. He opens it up. He offers them a seat on the couch, right? And while he's there, I don't know how you use leather-making tools, you know, with his tools. He's, he's telling them about Jesus, That is the slow, faithful work of the gospel, welcoming and proclaiming. And what does that look like for you? I'll tell you, part of being a person who is welcoming is living a life uh, that has porous boundaries. 
that we would be a people who are willing to let people who we don't know into our lives. Not just into our homes, although that's a part of it, right? But into our hearts. That that would happen with the people that we are naturally around, the people that we work with, the people that are our neighbors, the people that we meet at our kids' soccer practice, that we would have minds and hearts that are open to, Lord, who are you bringing into my life? Who are you asking me to welcome uh, in this space, in the space of my life? That we would be a people who are welcoming not only those who are like us, but also those who are not like us. That's what Paul is doing. People who are not yet Christians are flooding into his home to hear the gospel. I don't know, flooding, trickling, whatever they're doing. But that would be true for us, that the people that we would be welcoming into our hearts and literally into our homes would be people who are like us and are not like us, people who know Jesus and people who don't. And that that's what they would receive in their interaction with us and their welcome in is the love of Jesus, that that is what they would experience. You know, that is what our hope is for this congregation, isn't it? that this space, that this place would be a place of welcome? That when people come here, that what they would experience is the love of Jesus in you guys. Because I can't create that. Well, I'm not the pastor here, so obviously I can't create it. But Randy can't create that. That's not a thing that the staff here can create. This being a welcoming environment is a decision that you will make to welcome the people who come in here, who sit around you, who you don't know. Like you remembering, like you meeting someone and learning their name and then you writing it down so that the next week you can know their name. Like that's what it looks like for us to say, we are going to make this space a welcoming community. It looks like volunteering for Kid Town, right? It sounds silly, but it's true because there are people who want to come here and bring their kids and we want to have a space for those people to bring their kids. That we as a people would be welcoming in the way that we live our lives or the way that we do church together. And that we would also be a people who proclaim, who are with boldness willing to share about who Jesus is. What does that look like? How do we do it? Well, I don't have a clock, but I know I don't have time to talk about all that, okay? What I will tell you is that you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You have been filled with power. And the Holy Spirit is always on mission. He's always speaking to you about what it means to be on mission with him. So that being a people who are proclaiming is about being a people who are in tune with what the Holy Spirit is doing and where he's guiding us in our life. Sometimes it's as simple as asking a question. Like earlier this week, maybe two weeks ago, I asked a neighbor, um, can you just tell me about your spiritual background? I will tell you, I almost choked on the question on its way out. I'm like, this was so, it was so scary to me. And I do this for my job, people, Okay. But what that did is it opened up a conversation and now we're talking about uh, this person's spiritual life and now my spiritual life. I'm getting a chance to testify to the hope of Israel, the hope of the world, that Jesus who is my hope, that that is what we are called to as a people. And look, there are all kinds of buts when we hear that call to welcome and proclaim, right? But I'm so busy. I've got a lot of activities happening. It's true. Yeah, but I have a lot of doubts myself. Same. But look at the sin in my life. Look at my story. I, I'm not the right person to, okay. But what about, we've got all these bad tapes, right? But I don't want to do it like this, but I certainly won't do it like that. But I don't want to come across like this guy. And what if I sound like, yeah, yeah, okay. 
There are a lot of things we don't want to do. I get it. And we can spend time talking about all those things. Here's what I think, though. Under all of those objections, under all of our butts, really, is that there are places in our own hearts and lives where we have not yet experienced the welcome of Jesus for us. And what you got to know is that your Jesus is standing with arms open to welcome you in the places of your deepest sin, of your greatest shame. I want you to imagine Jesus like you're showing up in a confessional booth, you know, like to tell him your sins. And you're kind of rattling, you know, did this, did that, did that. And what we often expect is for Jesus to like, I've never been in a confessional booth, but this is how I think they work for movies, you know. They kind of slide it open and then someone tells you, okay, now here's what you have to do to do penance, right? Say these things, do these things, and then like, then we'll be okay. And that's kind of how we imagine relating to Jesus. Guys, that's not it at all. That what Jesus does is he bursts through that confessional door and he wraps you in his arms and he smothers you with kisses and he says, I'm gonna throw you a party because I am so glad that you're home. That that is how your Jesus loves you. That is how he welcomes you. And in the places right now where even now you are saying that cannot be true, especially in those places, it's true. What do you proclaim to yourself in those places? Are you proclaiming to yourself that love and that kind of gospel? Or are you using different names for yourself? That perhaps one of the reasons we are so hesitant to be on mission is because when we sin, when we mess up, when we do the thing that we've said we would never do again, that we speak all kinds of horrible names over ourselves. And friends, what you need and what I need is to have the gospel proclaimed over us, isn't it? Because no one talks to you more than you. Although what we would proclaim over ourselves would be the gospel. The good news that there is nothing that we could do to make God love us any more than he already does. And that when we don't have the words to speak that over ourselves, that we would let other people who are a part of this community speak it to us and over us. That's what we're going to do as we worship this morning as we close in worship, is we are going to sing what is true about us because of the gospel. That we're going to sing the truth of the hope that we have in Christ. We're going to proclaim that over each other, that we're going to declare that we are a people who have been welcomed into the household of God by our loving Savior. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. Jesus, thank you I thank you for how much you love us. Lord, we confess that we have nothing to offer you this morning but our, but our need of you. And so, Jesus, we bring that boldly, uh, boldly to you now in worship. Jesus, we expect you, we call on you to meet us there in the place of our need because you've told us that is exactly where you delight and desire to pour your love and your forgiveness out over us. I pray that you would allow us to experience that this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.